Welcome back to Kids Brain Detectives. I'm Dr. Jennifer Morrison, your host. I can't wait to share this week's episode. The topic today is what you need to know about all of those letters and numbers that are part of a child's educational planning process. So the team here at Kids Brain, we work with kids of all ages, from birth all the way up through entrance into college. So our process not only involves figuring out what's going on with the child, what their strengths look like, what their weaknesses look like, what that might mean as far as diagnosis, but more importantly, what the next steps are. And those next steps mean building an intervention plan that can be helpful for parents to know what steps they can take moving forward to help their child build the requisite skills needed to grow up and move out of the house and be successful humans contributing to the world in a positive way. But parents can't always do this on their own. So private speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, counseling services, parent training, all of those things may be included in the parent side of an intervention plan. But our role as brain detectives here at Kids Brain is to facilitate children receiving services on the other side as well, which is the educational planning side. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the letters, numbers, and acronyms that go into that educational planning process so that you as parents are in the know on what may potentially be recommended or helpful for your child. So there's technically two different ways to provide educational supports for a child, and these are going to vary depending on where the child is receiving educational supports. They, if in a public school, are going to have different sets of provisions, or at least it will look different than in a private school setting often, versus a homeschooled setting where these support services are not necessarily applicable because you are working outside of those two systems. So we're going to assume for this chat that we are working with a child who is either in a public school setting or a charter school setting. And then at the very end, I'll talk with you a little bit about the private version of what this looks like as well. So let's start with what's called an IEP. This acronym means Individualized Education Plan, and this is essentially a blueprint for your child's experience through the special education program at school. And for a child to fit within the parameters of an IEP, they have to be identified as fitting into one of 13 federally legally recognized categories where educational support services can be provided to children. We're going to pause the IEP discussion for now, talk a little bit about Section 504 plans, because we're going to switch back and forth and talk about how one differs from the other and what commonalities they have too. A Section 504 plan is different because it is not offered through the special education program. So there is not really a set of, I think of these as diagnostic cubby holes that you have to fit a child into. This is also not through the same um, laws. So the laws that govern special education are different than the laws that govern a section 504 plan. And sometimes people will just call it a 504 plan. The Section 504 plan is covered by part of a, a disability legislation that is separate from educational consideration. So this is a lifespan provision, whereas a special education plan, an IEP, is only offered to a child through high school graduation. So when they complete their 
educational process through high school, their IEP no longer applies. So if you have a child receiving special education services through high school and you then want them to go on and receive supports in college, then you actually have to change plans and transition from an IEP to a Section 504 plan because Section 504 has no age limit on it. So you have service availability from birth through death, essentially, and the plans are structured slightly different. So when we look at what each of these plans does, an IEP provided through the special education program offers individualized educational supports. That's really important because what that means is that a program is being created specifically for that child. They are often using resources that are readily available to lots of children in the school. But in theory, creation of a special education IEP should be specific to that child, should involve changing the curriculum in some way, and or offering what are called related services, we'll talk about those in a minute, that a child needs because of their handicapping code. A handicapping code is one of 13 categories that you can fit into to receive services. And these services are provided at no cost to families. So school districts receive funding through the federal government, through state government, allocations for students with disabilities. The financial resources needed to pay for teachers and time under an IEP does not cost parents a single penny. In contrast, a Section 504 plan provides services and changes to the learning environment to allow children to receive their educational services solely in the regular education classroom with their peers, also provided at no cost to families. But the structure of a Section 504 plan never allows for a child to receive any differences in the quality or type of curriculum that they are receiving. So if you have a child who reads three grade levels below their peers, some modification of their educational environment will be needed to help them continue to grow at their own pace and make gains. If you have a child who is reading at grade level, but they need extra time to do so, like maybe they have some sort of visual tracking problem or slower processing speed or some condition that impacts their reading fluency, they can read at grade level, comprehend, understand what's going on in the red material, but they just need a little bit more time to do it those services are considered to be accommodations. You're not changing the curriculum. You're offering a change around the curriculum in the environment by extending time. So you essentially have a difference in whether the child is receiving the same instruction as the children sitting in the desks in either side of them. So when we look at the differences, part of the difference is eligibility. When we talk about special education services, Often parents will have the misconception that having a diagnosis, especially if they come for an evaluation through a private professional like the team of brain detectives at Kids Brain, is that if a diagnosis is made of any kind, then that opens up the door for special education services. And it doesn't because there's actually two different provisions that need to be met, so two different thresholds for entry that have to be met simultaneously for a child to be considered for special education services. The first is the child has to fit into one of those 13 cubby holes. So if there is a diagnosis of 
a specific learning difference or an auditory impairment like being deaf or having a visual impairment like being blind or an orthopedic impairment like requiring a wheelchair or other motor supports to help the child access the educational environment, then they fit into one of those 13 criterion groups. And then the second hurdle is that the disability that's been diagnosed must affect the child's educational performance and the ability to learn and benefit from the classroom, the general education classroom. And then from there, the extension is the child must require some sort of specialized instructional supports to make progress in school. So sometimes this can be an extensive level of provision where you have a child who has a number of disabling conditions or who has needs that are far more intense than the other children that they are being educated with. And they may have almost all of their educational day outside of the regular education classroom. And they may work directly in a self-contained classroom with a special education teacher. And for those of you of a certain age, this was how special education was handled for quite some time. They were all what are called pull-out services, which means the child was pulled out of the regular classroom and sent to another classroom with a teacher who could provide specialized instruction. This has been a trend that has shifted quite a bit over the years. And currently, the hope is that all children will have the opportunity to spend as much time with in the general education classroom and with their non-disabled peers as possible. So oftentimes within the special education program, the first place that there will be decisions made is how much time is the child going to need services and what do those services look like? No longer are we in a situation where children are initially pulled out of their general education classrooms to provide support. Instead, we're in a place where those services increasingly are being pushed into the classroom, where the teacher, the special education provider, goes into the regular education classroom and serves almost like a co-teacher with a regular classroom teacher to facilitate any adjustments to the curriculum that need to happen for children that have learning needs through a special education IEP. Let's talk a little bit about how this differs from a Section 504 plan. So technically, there's not a list of go-to diagnoses that are acceptable or unacceptable under a Section 504 plan provision. If a child has any disability, then they could potentially be considered for a Section 504 plan as long as that disability can be linked with some sort of interference with their ability to learn in a general education classroom. So as you can see, a Section 504 plan has a much broader definition than the disability definitions under the special education provision. Essentially, what a Section 504 plan is provided for is any situation when a disability limits one or more basic life activities. And those can include any aspect of learning, reading, communicating, and thinking. This is why a child who does not qualify for special education services may still be able to receive services through the Section 504 plan because they define disability differently. Under the special education side of the provision for an IEP, you have to have a need for individual instructional elements 
if you have a child who can be in a general education classroom and have the environment shift around them but still receive the same level of instruction as their classmates without modifying it, making changes to it, then a Section 504 plan may be a better match for what their needs are. So who creates these plans? For a special education IEP, there's a really strict set of legal requirements that govern who has to be a part of this process and what it looks like. And that's kind of extends beyond the topic for today. But there are a number of parties that are involved. Sometimes these meetings will have a full conference room full of people that work with a specific child to participate in the educational planning process. The Section 504 committee is usually smaller and it is inclusive of a parent, a teacher and some sort of administrator at a minimum. So there's less required people that have to be present at the Section 504 meeting. And these meetings are less formal. I think of this, and this may be a, an oversimplification, but because the special education program is funded, directly funded through money from the state or the federal government, it seems like it's trickier. <laughs> and I think that's because it requires more steps and hoops to get to the place where money is allocated for your child. Because Section 504 does not have any money tied to it. So the school district does not benefit financially from having your child receive services through a Section 504 plan. That cuts both ways. It also means that there are limits to what a Section 504 plan can cover. Because if you tip over into territory where actual money would need to be expended for your child's needs, then you need to be potentially considering whether a 504 plan is comprehensive enough. So when we look at the overview of what elements are needed to differentiate the kids that should be in one area versus the other, a lot of times the difference is in the nuts and bolts of the educational process. What kind of curriculum elements are needed? How can we provide support? And does that require that a teacher with a specialty of some type work with your student directly in a way that's different from what the other kids in their third grade classroom or eighth grade classroom or whatever are receiving? And if the answer is yes, then they would be potentially looking at services through a special education plan. If the answer is no, if we're talking about things like extended time or using a computer to type because you have some sort of motor impairment that makes handwriting difficult, or you need to have a quieter place to take tests because distraction is a problem. Like maybe there's a child with an ADHD diagnosis who is very bright, very capable in the classroom, but distraction becomes a big deal when it's test taking time and they need a quieter place to work. Those sorts of things where the environment is shifting around the child are what are the meat of a Section 504 plan. But all of those accommodations can also be covered under a special education plan. So in essence, a 504 plan covers a part of the supports that can be helpful for a child. If they need more than the environment to flex around them, and they need a teacher to work with them on closing a specific skill set gap or learning in a different way, or they need time in a smaller group situation to work on skill set development, then we shift out of Section 504 plan territory and into 
the special education IEP territory. Hopefully this is a good starting place for you guys. If you are in territory where you are trying to figure out all of this complicated process, because this is just an overview of the plans. We did not get into the weeds on how these things are supposed to be built, how you can potentially um, advocate for your child through this process, or what the intricacies of the law say as far as your rights and your child's rights. Those are different conversations for later on down the line. But this is a good starting place so that you know at least what the school is talking about when they throw some acronyms or numbers at you and then look at you as if you're supposed to know this already. All right, we'll add all of those additional weedy elements later on as we move through this process. Let's talk handicapping codes today. A handicapping code is a fancy way that the special education system recognizes specific types of disability that are covered by state and federal law as being areas that need to be supported in educational settings. So when you have a child who has one of 13 types of diagnosis, they will fit within the recognizable categories for special education services if their disability also impacts them educationally. So there's an overview discussion about the differences between an IEP and a Section 504 plan that talks a little bit more about this. Today, we're talking about the assumption that your child is being considered for special education services and the 13 categories, 13 handicapping codes that the school district will be considering or should be considering when they are completing their evaluation. The reason that I say should be is when you have a child who is potentially eligible for special education services, the law says that all 13 of these categories should be considered as a part of the assessment. And oftentimes when I'm reviewing reports from school districts and helping parents through the process of advocating for their child, often the consideration of some of these areas will go kind of unspoken. Like, yeah, yeah, we thought about these handicapping codes, but we didn't think that that was going on, so we skipped that part. But in theory, there should be some explicit statement in the report itself that says, I thought about this, and then I ruled this in or out. So not just the ones that are considered as highly likely targets for assessment, but all of them. So let's talk a little bit about what they look like. Um, category number one, specific learning disability. This is a category that covers learning challenges and learning differences that affect a child's ability to read or to write, to listen, to speak, to reason and problem solve, to complete math tasks. So interestingly, the federal law, which is called IDEIA, it's a big acronym, the Individuals with Disabilities Act covers children across the United States, but then each state government takes those federal regulations and creates their own state version. So I'm in Texas. So we will have the Texas version of the laws as they are extended into our classrooms here. And they look really different than what things look like in Florida or Tennessee or Alaska. So these are the broad categories that are recognized by federal law. And this may mean that it shows up a little bit differently in your Connecticut classroom than it does in the California classroom, because the implementation of this law 
is handled at the state level. So if you're hearing me from a different state and this sounds a little bit different than what you were expecting, that may account for it. But this is what the federal law says. So the wording in the specific learning disability criterion or the areas that would potentially fall under this heading include things like dyslexia, dyscalculia, which is a math disorder, and written expression disorder, which is also sometimes called dysgraphia. Those are broad categories. Those are the more clinical diagnoses, but you can have a child who struggles with reading who's not dyslexic, that maybe has a comprehension deficit or some sort of other fluency deficit. You may have a child who has writing struggles that are related to the content of writing, like the words of writing, or the motor control part, or a combination of those. So these can look a little bit different depending on each child's individual presentation, but the federal law says dyslexia should fit under this category. The reason why I say that in a specific term, as I did, is because here in the state of Texas, and I think in a lot of states across the United States, but not all of them, we handle dyslexia differently. For whatever reason, it is carved out as a specific provision for support that is handled through the Section 504 process. And the instructional elements, which are different from the general classroom that involve a child leaving the classroom and receiving support services, often for several years, or the duration of their educational experience, depending on how severe their dyslexia is, looks very much like what a special education program would look like. But for whatever weird Texas reason, they will encompass this under the Section 504 process and not say that these kids meet criterion for a special education IEP. I have a number of children that I work with in my role as a brain detective here at Kids Brain that really need more than that. And their dyslexia is also accompanied by struggles in learning in other areas, maybe pretty pervasive writing struggles or difficulties with math and computation, because these are not clean diagnoses. Learning differences are because that child's brain processes information differently. And oftentimes it's not just isolated to reading or just writing or just math. It could be a combination and overlap in those. So all of that to say, although the federal government says a specific learning disability should include dyslexia, here in the state of Texas, they will consider those kids to fall under the Section 504 side of the provision. You can get a child with dyslexia services through the special education program, but sometimes it takes a little bit of help with an advocate to get them there. Okay, category two is other health impairment. And the acronym for this one is OHI. And this covers conditions that limit a child's energy, strength, alertness, which is kind of weird. The verbiage itself is broad. Like you can interpret that a number of ways. But essentially, the other health impairment category in how it's used, now this may differ slightly from how it was written, includes kids that have difficulties of all different types that don't really fit neatly into the other 12 categories and do have difficulties with learning that are related to strength, energy, levels of alertness, their vitality in the classroom. So this will sometimes include my more medically complex kids. So kids with brain tumors, seizure disorders, genetic conditions that impact learning will often fall under the other health impairment classification. And then lots and lots and lots of my kids with ADHD. So there are a number of different conditions, but generally the theory is these are your 
neurological conditions or developmental conditions that are linked to medical causes more often than not. Okay, section three, autism. Now, in the clinical setting, we call it an autism spectrum disorder. The federal law, I think, still uses the word autism, which is a broad classification that doesn't really encompass the variations in functional skill that we see in children with diagnoses on the autism spectrum. But this is the territory where children who have a history of what was previously called Asperger's syndrome, that is no longer a diagnostic area from a clinical standpoint, and kids that have other pervasive developmental disorders that relate to social communication skills and their ability to engage and connect with others in a way that impacts their behavior and their learning in the classroom will fall. The fourth category is emotional disturbance. And this is when we have the convergence between mental health issues and learning. So if we have a child who has an anxiety disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, psychosis, that's not schizophrenia, other impacting mental health states that will lead to learning struggles because of their emotional difficulties, they will fall under an emotional disturbance header. Now, does this mean that every child with anxiety or every child with depression will qualify for special education services? No. I've actually worked with a number of children who have fairly severe mental health issues, but it doesn't carry over into their grades. They pass their classes. They make good grades in their testing. They do, for all intents and purposes, well enough to pass, which is often the threshold for school districts not necessarily for parents, but for school districts, that a child is successfully making gains and moving from grade to grade as they should. So in this situation, again, keep in mind that the burden needed to fit a child into the special education program is first that they have a diagnosable condition, so anxiety disorder, bipolar, or whatever, depression, but that secondarily, it has to impact them educationally and in this case, be the primary reason why they can't learn the same way that their peers can. And that's the part where things get a little bit tricky because emotional disturbance is a real easy catch-all category because it's less complex to say a child has anxiety and therefore they struggle to learn. But in my experience, I've only really had a handful of truly emotionally disturbed kids that were struggling to learn because of their emotional state. A lot of times the emotional stuff is secondary. So it's secondary to an ADHD diagnosis or it follows because they have a learning difference that was undiagnosed and they're struggling and have been struggling for some time in the classroom. So oftentimes the emotional disturbance piece is, is a harder for me as a professional because I feel like this is a lot of times the emotional piece comes second to some other primary cause that is leading the march when it comes to learning struggles. Category five is speech and language impairments. This is going to cover kids that have expressive language delays, who stutter, who have articulation differences, who have difficulties of any kind with oral communication or the ability to express knowledge through words. This can be a category that involves an opening for kids to receive direct related services. Related services are 
I think of them as sidecar services. So if you have a child who's riding in an education plan, they're like in the main part of the motorcycle, but there's a sidecar over there where additional services, they pop into that sidecar for additional services. And it may be time with a speech language pathologist. So most of the time, now it can at times happen in the classroom, but most of the time it happens in an office one-on-one or in a small group with a speech language pathologist. And if that's the case, it's considered to be a related service. And there are times that you'll have kids who only have a speech impairment and are in the special education program only because of those language delays. And once those articulation differences or the difficulties with understanding them as they talk with you are resolved through intervention, then they will be exited from the special education program if there's no other impacts on learning. Category six is visual impairment. This is going to also include blindness. This category is for children who have eyesight problems that impact their ability to interact with the educational environment successfully. So partial sight, so reduced sight is a possibility or full blindness. This is not for kids that just need a pair of glasses to see in the classroom, because if eyewear can keep the child from having the vision problem, it can correct it fully, then the child doesn't qualify for services under this designation. So it's for children who have more pronounced visual impairments than uh, their peers that can't be corrected with a special lenses or something like that, that would level the playing field then for them. Category seven is deafness. Kids with a diagnosis of deafness, even a partial deafness will fall under this category if they can't hear most or all sounds, even with a hearing aid. This is also one of those tricky categories because if you have a child whose hearing deficits are fully resolved with the use of a hearing aid, then they likely won't receive services through the special education program because the hearing aid is doing the work needed to level the playing field for them. But even with a hearing aid, if there are residual hearing deficits that are there, they may qualify under the auditory impairment category. Okay, so they split out deafness, full or most sounds not being able to register kind of hearing loss, separate from what is a broader hearing impairment. So this is more auditory processing struggles. So category eight is hearing impairments that are not deafness. So this can be something where you have hearing that you lose or change over time. Being hard of hearing is not the same thing as having difficulty with auditory processing. These kids will pass their auditory acuity testing, you know, the where you wear the headphones or you go into a booth and you indicate the sounds that you've heard at different frequencies. These kids can do that part. They have a hard time with hearing sounds amid background noise or they have difficulty with the language elements of interpreting the language that's coming in. So this is a neurological problem. The sound is going into the ear. It is vibrating the way it would in a normally functioning ear. But once it gets to the brain, the brain has a hard time doing what it needs to with it. That's your hearing impairment classification. Category nine is for kids who are both deaf and blind. So they have severe hearing and vision problems at the same time. That kind of speaks for itself. Category 10 is orthopedic impairments. These are children, for instance, who have medical conditions like cerebral palsy or a spinal cord injury or something like that where moving some part of their body is not possible and that impacts their ability to do age level, grade level tasks in the classroom. Category 11 is an intellectual disability 
way back when it would have been called mental retardation, but these are usually children that have broader cognitive deficits than a specific learning difference in that learning is affected across the board. So kids with an intellectual disability will have some degree of difficulty in all academic areas, although they may have strengths and weaknesses within academic domains. They usually also have deficits in other adaptive areas like communication skills, self-care skills, social skills. An example of an intellectual disability that's related to a specific medical genetic syndrome would be Down syndrome, but there are a number of genetic conditions or conditions that are not related to a known syndrome that result in intellectual disability. Category 12 is traumatic brain injury. This is my specialty. This is a pretty low incidence category. There's not a lot of kids that are receiving special education services through the traumatic brain injury handicapping code, although there's a lot of kids that probably could be if they had the right kind of advocacy. So if you have a child who has had some sort of accident or a physical force that has impacted their brain that is not related to something like birth trauma, or for instance, if you have a child who has brain damage because of a complicated birth or a lack of oxygen during the birth process, that's not a traumatic brain injury. So the traumatic piece is the part that differentiates those kids from others. So if you have a child who has a history of a near drowning or some sort of hypoxia or anoxia, which is lack or reduced lack of or reduced oxygen that impacts brain function after, then those kids are going to slot in under the other health impairment handicapping code. What we're talking about is the kiddos that are developing just like they were expected to and then had some sort of traumatic force to the brain that caused damage that then impacted them educationally. So car accidents or having children who have accidents where they've fallen from something or been struck by something horse accidents, skiing accidents, those sorts of things that cause a specific knowable moment of damage to the head and the brain. Um, and then you have educational impacts that follow from there. Those kids are going to fit under the traumatic brain injury category. And then the final is called multiple disabilities. And this is for kids that have a need for provision of supports that's not covered well by just one condition. So they may have multiple complicating factors you may have a child who has an orthopedic impairment and who is blind and who is deaf with severe impairments will often fall here. You don't generally see kids that have milder presentations like ADHD and a learning difference, although there's two of them, don't usually get classified under the multiple disabilities category. This is where things get a little bit procedurally different. I think technically per the law, you could, because essentially what the law says is that there are multiple issues that create educational needs that can't be met in a program designed for any one disability. But in this case, most of the time in practice, multiple disabilities as a classification category are reserved for children that have a more severe need, usually for full pullout services with a special education teacher in a special education classroom and are not accessing the general education classroom on a consistent basis. Okay, that's the 13 handicapping codes for which you can receive special education services if your child A has a diagnosed disability that's recognized by the school district, that's a whole nother conversation, and B, has an educational need for individualized educational supports, 
that will allow them to be successful in the general education classroom and that without those supports, they are not successful in the classroom. All right, super fun, exciting stuff. Thanks for listening. Hello, Kids Brain families. This is Dr. Morrison talking with you about some super exciting special education stuff that may be helpful for you. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about very little kids and special education services. There are a number of recordings that cover what I think of as your school age kids that span elementary school, middle school, and high school as far as eligible services that may be available, what types of services, Section 504 versus special education, handicapping codes, and all of that. But there is a special kind of carved out set of provisions for very little kids. In theory, the special education service does not start until the age of three. So if you have a child who is diagnosed with a developmental delay or is showing signs of difficulties with speech and language development or motor development or cognitive development prior to the age of three, they fall under a provision specifically for early childhood. Here in the state of Texas, they call it early childhood intervention, so ECI. And sometimes those services depending on the school district, are funded through the school district. Sometimes the school district pays for those services through outside contractors. So in some of the school districts around Dallas, especially in the northern reaches that are well-funded school districts, they will actually have schools for children in the early childhood age range that are receiving services on site. Others will have uh, walk-in services. So let's say you have a child who have spe has speech needs only. They only have struggles with language and communication. They may come into see a provider a couple of days a week for a session, but they don't attend school there. But starting at the age of three, there is a possibility that this looks like an embedded service. So you could have a preschool programming within an elementary school, or you could have a completely separate early childhood setup, but you don't have the ability to enter until the age of three. Before that, the services can be offered through the school district directly or through contractors, but ECI services don't happen in a physical school. So from birth through the third birthday, so up into the third birthday, those services are usually in a home health service. So the providers come to the family home or into a community setting, or they have a standalone center where developmental services are offered and families take their children there. But it is not necessarily something that happens the same way in every place. Even within the sort of radius that I work within here at Kids Brain, there are some school districts that will have centers where they refer families for all of their services. The school district funds those centers through a joint financial agreements. And then there's others that don't have center-based services. They're smaller school districts, usually with less funding. And then we'll have private contractors that are set up to provide those services and not in a clinic setting. So 
through the early intervention program, you have kind of two different pieces. You have the birth through age two piece and then the three and up piece. So we're going to talk about the what I think of as the preschool age services where special education services are in play starting at age three. And this is going to be when you have children from three and up who have different types of needs because of delays. And it may be physical needs like reaching, crawling, walking, drawing, building, motor development. It could be that they are having deficits in cognitive skills like thinking, learning, and early problem solving. They could have difficulties with communication skills like talking and listening and understanding others. They may have limitations in what are called adaptive skills, which are self-help skills like eating and dressing and toileting. And then you may have a child who has developmental delays in their early social and emotional skills like playing and interacting with others. Although all states offer some sort of early intervention service, not all of them do this the same way. So for those of you that may be listening outside of the state of Texas or outside of even the Dallas Metroplex, it may look very different in your hometown or in your state. Some states allow families to make their own referrals if they're concerned, but there's generally a process where you reach out to the school district and make a request for services to be initiated. And then if they are eligible, they will have a coordinator from the state's early intervention program that will develop an individualized plan specifically for the family. So for children in this age range, there's usually a parent piece involved. There should be a parent piece involved because that's how you're going to help children the most because their parents are going to spend much more time with them than the speech therapist or the developmental specialist that comes to the house. So who qualifies for early intervention services? Any child that has a developmental delay or a specific health condition that will probably lead to a delay, including things like genetic disorders that you know over time lead to educational impacts, birth defects, hearing loss that's progressive over time, those sorts of things, are potentially eligible for early intervention services. In a few states, kids can get services if they're at risk for developmental delays because of risk factors like low birth weight, drug exposure, and other environmental issues. So state by state, thus may vary depending on who is going to receive these services, but it is possible within your state for kids that are risky for future developmental delays to catch those early and help them. And if those services are available, you should be capitalizing on those. For a child who does qualify for early intervention services, the kinds of things that can be covered under these plans include speech and language services with a speech language pathologist or an SLP physical services through an occupational or physical therapist to work on motor development, psychological services, either working with a child directly from a behavioral standpoint, working with a family for parent training, home visits, medical nursing and nutrition services for kids who are medically complex. Maybe they have a feeding tube or some other medical ongoing thing that parents need support for because this is something that's going to impact them future wise as far as their educational needs, then they start early in providing services. Kids that have already been diagnosed with hearing or vision problems that are impacting their ability to interact with the world and to learn 
social work services, transportation services, and other assistive technology services can also be included in these early intervention plans when they are created well. Sometimes they're not, and it is up to the family then to find resources to help themselves out. The team of brain detectives here at Kids Brain serves this role quite frequently, but part of this process is to make sure that we have parents who are educated, which is why we are making these super, maybe not exciting, but hopefully helpful recordings to give you an overview of what these services and the available resources might look like for you and your child. Thanks for listening.